to Two Guys, One Book, where two friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Okay, welcome back to Two Guys, One Book. I'm Tim, joined with Brian. Um, today's book is When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalathini. Cal- How do you say his name? I would say Kalanithi. Kalanithi, yeah, Kalanithi. yeah, Kalanithi. And yeah. this was Brian's pick. So, yes. Brian, why did you choose this book? Uh, well, this book uh, is about a neurosurgeon who gets cancer and then he unfortunately passes away. And uh, a little backstory about me is that I had have had Hodgkin's lymphoma and went through an ordeal of my, my own. And so it was... Um, something that uh, I was curious about reading and because I've heard good things about it and I see why it's a it's a very good book well written and um, I enjoyed it quite a bit so some of the things he wrote about were very um, uh, applicable to my experience going through uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma so uh, I was very I consider myself fortunate because I did not have to deal with the level of cancer that he had to deal with uh, but unfortunately that is something that people have to deal with it from time to time so that's why I picked it I liked it a lot did you did you have any preconceived notions coming into this one going into it yeah um, I mean I knew the subject matter was gonna be kind of heavy <laughs> but uh, I was impressed I thought it was really good mm-hmm. so yeah yeah he, he's not a, I well I don't think anybody that's a neurosurgeon is a t- is a typical person. Like it takes a lot of hard work and determination to become a neurosurgeon. But this Paul, uh, in particular, he he started his edu- his academic career in English or literature, and he was a big. So like I feel like starting his academic career in English influenced him to become a good writer, and so I feel like. He was kind of the perfect vessel for this um, experience to happen to so that he could articulate it in such a beautiful way. Yeah, I liked hearing about his upbringing too and mm-hmm. how his mom would get him to read all these books when he was a kid, kind of like adult level books oh. and uh, with kind of heavy themes, but it really helped make him well-rounded and get a sense of literature and philosophy and all these different areas. So yeah, I was impressed by his writing for being a neurosurgeon. I mean, I wouldn't say he's like, one of the top tier writers, but for how skilled he is at in the medical field to also be this good of a writer, it's like that's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and like yeah, he he rattles off the big list of books that he read as a kid, mm-hmm. and it's like that's like some of my favorite books and other ones that I've been meaning to read. So it's like it was a perfect. I definitely highlighted that section and took notes. Like those are going to be some of my books that I'm going to yeah. read eventually. But um, but a little brief overview. It's it's got a little prologue where he kind of discusses uh, how this all began, and then he goes back. The, the first section is In Perfect Health, I Begin, and where he talks about his upbringing in Arizona and, um, and how he became a doctor and how he went through school and wanted to do English first because his dad was a doctor. and his bro- Were both his brothers doctors or just one of them? I think they all, were all in the medical yeah, field. Yeah, yeah. And then, so he, he talks about his background, and then when he gets diagnosed in this story, or in, in he, he goes into the second part of the book called Cease Not Till Death, and then he writes up until he passes away, 
And then there's an epilogue written by his wife, which I thought was very touching as well. Uh, kind of a good way to wrap things up. It wasn't very long. I felt like it was a quick read. Mm-hmm. I tore through it in no time. It helped when I had a flight. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, his his wife's epilogue was impressive. I thought mm-hmm. like she came off as very caring and compassionate and just as good of a writer as he mm-hmm. as he was. Um, I'm sure we'll have some quotes from that later on. Mm-hmm. But just to go back to the cancer real quick. So he had lung cancer, right? Which he never smoked or anything, right. which is crazy that. But a fair amount of people who never smoked could still develop it. Mm-hmm. And he's only in his, like, 30s when he got it. Uh, yeah. I think early, yeah. mid-30s. Mid, mid-30s, I think it was, yeah. yeah. But I actually know somebody else, uh, an acquaintance of my parents, who got lung cancer, and he was never a smoker either. And I hear that that is to get lung cancer and have it not be in, in a non-smoker, that's, like, not a very good cancer to have. Like, that is a very aggressive and, and hard to mm-hmm. uh, uh, treat and get rid of cancer, so. What was the Hodgkin's lymphoma? Like, how did that work? I don't really know much about it. Well, it's the cancer of the lymph node system, which is, the lymph node is are nothing you really think about in your bodily functions from day to day. Uh, but I think the part of the uh, immune system, I even forget <laughs> it was a while ago yeah. but no like so I I felt a lump in my armpit which is where some lymph nodes are and then when I went in for a scan I had them in my neck my armpits and down in my chest and and abdomen um, so I kind of had them all over but they were all really small like that's one cool thing about my experience was that the doctors were very uh, open and to communicate everything with you and I even saw my scans and what so like because if you're going through something like that they're not you know, sometimes when you go to the doctor for a regular checkup you kind of feel like I don't know sometimes they're just going from one person to the next and you know but in my experience that the oncology um, doctors are particularly um, caring and, and open to address anything that you may have on your mind and willing to give you their best, um, what they can offer. Um, I know one thing about me was I went, I, at the end of my cancer treatments, I went into my oncologist with some existential angst <laughs> and he, he did his best to try to help address that. But, um, you know, that wasn't really his forte. <laughs> right. So yeah, there's there's a lot of existential talk in this mm-hmm. book as well. If we could go into, but just to talk about the doctors real quick, what struck me in the book was how much um, uncertainty I guess there was when it came to medical decisions. Mm-hmm. Like when he's describing his own residency as a neurosurgeon, and then talking about his diagnosis and how different specialists specialists wanted uh, him to be treated. Um, it was like a lot of them ended up disagreeing about what was wrong and the best way to address it, things like that. So a lot of it felt very subjective and kind of crazy to me how disorga- disorganized it kind of was. Mm-hmm. But um, it's good that you're, in your experience you had a good kind of relationship with your doctors. Right. And, and, and I think that goes to show just how aggressive and nasty his health condition was. Whereas mine was a pretty routine Hod- Hodgkin's lymphoma and they have a regimen of chemo drugs that they give that are pretty consistently good Mm -hmm. with treating that Hodgkin's lymphoma. So, and also there's the difference between Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's, whereas Hodgkin's is is probably just the 
most popular form of lymphoma, so they know how to treat it. The non-Hodgkin's you get in the different variations that are maybe more aggressive or not as well studied. Mm -hmm. And I think in the author's case here, that lung cancer spreading to all his other organs created problems that I think you're right, that were not a one a one size fits all solution, you know, but different things were happening. So different specialists that deal with immunology or I don't know I can't even you know they he was rattling off how many doctors were in that room that one time towards the end Mm -hmm. and it was pretty substantial like four or five different doctors of different specialties and they were all wanting slightly different things Mm -hmm. and so yeah I I, I agree that it, it did seem in this case that it wasn't it was more subjective because there is no cut and dry solution for uh scenarios that were as bad as what Paul was in that's what makes this whole, these events so um, frightening and frustrating, I think, is the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. It's like he never really knew how much time he had left and it found out it's a terminal illness, but does that mean he has a few months or a few years? Um, you know, what should he do about his job? He's been training to be a resident uh, surgeon for years. He's in a relationship. He talked about some of his, like, marital issues and whether or not they should have a kid, things like that. So, oh, yeah. that 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 is entirely frustrating and and I think um, but there's nothing you can do about it and doctors are incredibly smart dedicated hard-working people but yet even they can disagree on how to handle things or they can't give you a straight answer because they just don't know like that's what one part of the book was that he was talking about how he didn't know how much time he had left when it was really bad and so what was he gonna do like Give me a month, I'll just do nothing and enjoy life. Give me three years, I'll write. Give me ten years, I'll go back to surgery or something like that. I think it was one part was one quote he said. So that is a, and 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 I, I found it interesting. And, one, and when he was going through his um, treatments and whatnot, he was wanting the doctor to like give him the statistics of it or something, and she wasn't she wasn't going to, and because. And like, and he mentioned how doctors can't really say like, when a doctor says, "Oh, he has six months to live," that they can't really say that with certainty, you know. So, when somebody lives nine months or a year, after the six months come and go, a person is like, "Oh, those doctors don't know what they're talking about." But when really, you know, they're just making educated guesses. Right. He wanted to know a statistical range. Yeah. Like I have about this much time to this much time, but I don't think she wanted to give him that frame of reference. She just wanted to kind of take things one day at a time and make progress as much as they could. Um, but yeah, as far as like meaning and identity and and uh, navigating that whole experience, I just can't imagine because, mm-hmm. yeah, like I said, he's he did this whole surgical residence, like he spent like a decade of his life preparing to be a neurosurgeon. He has these like grand plans and um, it's just crazy to think about how that can come crashing down and just like, okay, like who am I now? Like, how do I define myself? Who will I be? Like when you mentioned like existential angst <laughs> and then going to a doctor with that, it's like they're training the medical side, but mm-hmm. it's probably hard to um, help you with that as much. Right. Right. Yeah. But yeah, as he talks about a lot about like philosophy and in the book and um, his views and uh, it's, that's what makes him such an interesting subject in this case is that he has that background in literature philosophy. He went through this experience and... Uh, well, he was fascinated with death. 
Right. Which I meaning and death. Right. Because he 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 felt at first that like literature was, um, you know, the way to pe- people who have written throughout history about life and the experiences that we all uh, go through in life can can find um, reflections on how to get meaning out of life through literature. And then so he that's how he initially went to literature. And then he realized well from the bio from the, the biological point of view, the the brain is where we create the meaning, where we process everything. So if he learns everything about the brain, maybe he'll know more about, you know, get more glimpses in the meaning of life through science and, and medicine through that way. So I found it interesting how his his philosophical approach to life led him down literature first and then to, to the medicine field later. And I and I you know, I can appreciate that as going through Hodgkin's lymphoma has shaped my views of life and death and meaning and all that stuff as well. If I had one critique of the book, and I, I mean no disrespect. Sure, sure. Because, you know, yeah. everything him and his family went through. Yeah. But there were times when maybe it felt a little repetitive, some of the language he used about the um, his vocation, I guess his calling. Because mm. he would say like... Uh, neurosurgery is the worst industry to go into, but I was called by a higher, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I think what he said was, I think neurosurgery is not a good job. Mm-hmm. It's a calling. Like if they, people don't go into that form of stressful medicine because of the money or the hours or this, whatever. They go into that because they feel called to do that work. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he mentions that, yeah. But also people interested in the brain and curious how that mm-hmm. works. And it just seems like um, it's a very noble profession. And I have a lot of respect for anyone who does this sort mm-hmm. of thing. But at the same time, I think it's hard to distinguish the line between sounding a little self-important and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, have to, I, I have to find see. something to critique. Yes, of course you do. Of Once course. again, no disrespect right. intended. But like... I see. So that... You feel like him was kind of stroking his own ego, saying that, "I here I am. I am called to do this great work. It it's lousy on my body. It it stresses me out both body and mind. But it's a calling that I am compelled to do, and I wouldn't have it any other way." Well, a part yeah. of me felt that. A little yeah. Bit. But like, <laughs> at the same time, he's he must be very intelligent and mm-hmm. to work like those hours and this kind of. Subject material, like, mm-hmm. I have all the respect in the world for that. So, right. just... Yeah. Uh, so, was that the main critique you had? Do you have any others? Um, I don't know. I think... Like I said, as a writer, I wouldn't say he's one of the best writers I've read, mm-hmm. but the fact that it's his not main profession, mm-hmm. or thing that he was doing, I feel like gives that some excuse. Um, I thought he was a great writer. I think he's a good writer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's not like... Hunter S. Thompson or Virginia Woolf that <laughs> well, we read so far. See, I would say I would almost. I enjoyed reading him more than Virginia Woolf. I I enjoyed this book more than mm-hmm. that book. Okay, but I'm just saying. As a so that's as a, a that's a that's a good question that we stumbled upon. Is it the book itself or is it the writing? And how do you differentiate between the two? Like, you know. Yeah, I mean, this could be a philosophical rabbit hole to go into, 
but I think the general heuristic I was going by that like old books are always better. I'm sort of starting to rethink that, because <laughs> like this is newer and uh -huh. I like it better than a lot of the older books I've read. So okay. just because a book is old doesn't mean it's good. Just because a book is new doesn't mean it's bad right. or you know less. Well, good. Yeah, I'm glad. You, I'm glad you 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 come to that realization. Chad, Trying to be flexible. Yeah, in my yeah. Mental habits. Mm -hmm. But no, it's a it's a beautiful book and. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, like we talked about the epilogue with his wife really mm -hmm. helped round it out, I think, and mm -hmm. add more depth and context to the whole thing. So. Yeah. I wish it was a little longer, but, you know, I mean, he only was writing it for the last, I don't know, however, months or year yeah. or so. He wasn't, he, he, when he was first diagnosed, he was more motivated to get back into the operating room and getting back to seeing patients and all that stuff. Yeah. So I, get, I applaud him for doing that. Uh, I think a lot of people would have totally understood if he would have just done something else, mm -hmm. like just be a professor or something like that, or or I don't know what else he could have done, you know? I have mixed feelings about his decision to go back as a surgeon mm -hmm. while he's diagnosed and undergoing treatments, because on one hand, it's like, is it selfish because you could you should be spending time with your family doing this and that, but on the other, on the other hand, it's like this is your identity, this is what you feel important doing. You should do this because it makes because it makes you feel good. And on the other hand, so many hands. The other other hand. Yeah, on, on your third <laughs> hand, um, <laughs> is it is he doing a disservice to patients who aren't getting a doctor at their best? I, but he had like residents to back him up mm -hmm. during surgeries. Right. But um, yeah, I didn't. I mean, I guess I never realized the how many tiers of people there are in different stages of their medical career because you have like residents and you had med students and then residents and then doctors and att attending and like I didn't quite fall I don't it's I'm hard not to grasp yeah that. it is I mean yeah but what struck me in general was how intense the OR is with like brain surgery it's like they're sawing people's skulls open just kind of like removing tumors doing mm -hmm. all these things and some of the stories he mentioned like there was a kid they removed a tumor in the front of his brain and then it sort of like affected his hypothalamus or something mm -hmm. so that controls it's like your impulse control yeah. part of your brain and then uh he was fine in the short term but then years later came back and had all of these like behavioral issues mm -hmm. so i just it just seems like so much pressure as yeah. a job you never know what the right decision is for sure it's not cut and dry like you said and what the consequences would be down the line for mm -hmm. the patient their family and the stress of a medical resident like they work insane hours he, one of his friends had committed suicide yeah and it was i think based on the patient or and like the sleep deprivation they go through it just seems kind of insane it doesn't really make sense in my opinion i mean i guess you want to it's like training for the army where you go through hell to get hardened so that you can handle anything that comes your way. But like going through 48 hours of sleeplessness, I just think is unrealistic. Like just have more people on staff yeah, to handle that, you know? How do you function as a person? I like, have no idea. How do you help people? You can't, how do you think clearly? No. It doesn't make sense to me. But I was listening to, I think it was like a TED Talk podcast mm -hmm. a while ago, and they were talking about how the person originally during the formation of this uh, program was like on cocaine. <laughs> it was like doing these hours, like one of the first physician residents, whatever. And I forget the whole story, but basically the person who could work 15 hour shifts was on cocaine. <laughs> so he set the bar at an unrealistic. Uh, 
Yeah. So just hop doctors up on cocaine. <laughs> no, just... no, no. <laughs> Not arguing for that. I think their hours should be way right. shorter. Right. But um, right. it's just interesting. Because, yeah, I mean, because, yeah, he talks about, I mean, I know we're not doing quotes, but, like, all right, didn't she see that I always that I only had one year left in residency, that I loved her, and that we were so close to the life together we've always wanted? That's the thing about going through med school and all this other crap is they have to suspend, you know, their their adulthood almost because they they're scraping to get by, they're working terrible hours, they're going through all this stress, and for what? Like, at the other end, they'll be doctors and they'll make a lot of money, and that's wonderful. But like. In Paul's example, he didn't get that. Nothing in life is guaranteed. You know, to put yourself through the hell that the doctors have to go through in med school and residency and all that stuff, is it worth it in the end? A lot of them, most of them will probably say yes. But I don't think it was for Paul. I mean, maybe it was for Paul because he got to at least help people in the, and he got to perform the surgeries in the OR on brains and spinal issues and whatnot. So... Maybe it was worth it for him, but, like, I don't know, man. Well, his his plan was kind of to do surgery for, like, 20 years, brain surgery, and then be a brain research scientist mm-hmm. for, like, 20 years. So this very, very long-term plan. And, yeah, the idea, like you said, is all about making short-term sacrifices for that long-term payoff. Uh, but it's tough when something like this comes up out of nowhere. It makes you think, like, plans were things we're thinking about doing in the future and just like well should we focus more on day-to-day stuff because he talks about a friend who had a car crash was in a car crash mm-hmm. and just all of a sudden is gone it's yep. like he's like comparing his cancer to that sort of sudden accident and just saying like you know is it different like how do we how should we live our lives based on these circumstances right so right yeah yeah i know for me when i was going when i was diagnosed with hodgkin's lymphoma i had no plan because i was already I already had a job I was surveying full time you know like I was done with school I was my first adult job a couple years into that job and then I get this diagnosis and at that time I didn't really was I I was just uh, two years into my new job I didn't really was thinking about like getting my professional surveyor's license or what would I do in the ten years from now I had no idea you know I wasn't even thinking about that and then. The diagnosis comes along that I just have to get through the treatments to get better. And then it was like a big void of like, now what? That was for me. So like I had no plan like this this guy did of laying out his whole career ahead of him. But what my personal experience did was it made me reassess everything. Well, yeah, everything that I was doing. <laughs> yeah, imagine it shakes your life up and then... Yeah. How do you transition right. to that and out of that? What other aspects of his experience do you relate to, or like oh. that you went through that he went through as well? Like you did chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. I just did chemo. I didn't do any radiation or anything okay. else. But um, but one thing he writes in his book. I mean, he literally I think stole it from. Yeah, this guy literally stole my line. <laughs> in in this part, he says, as a doctor, I knew not to not to declare. Cancer is a battle I'm going to win. Or ask, why me? Parentheses. Answer, why not me? And that's kind of what I thought, too, is like, you know, there's nothing... This is what led me down the, my path of stoicism. 
is because I didn't think about why me. Like I, I, I was journaling at the time when I was going through my treatments for lymphoma and so that helped me get through it and I was journaling about like why, literally I was journaling why not me. You know, somebody out there gets cancer every single day. I mean, it's, it sucks, but so why, was, why would I think that I'm above that? Why do, I, why do I think I'm special that I wouldn't, you know, get a cancer diagnosis? And I realized that once I did have the cancer diagnosis, asking why me did no good because it was completely out of your control. And that's what Stoics uh, focus on, what you can control and what you cannot control. And you can't, you can't let yourself get emotionally worked up over things that you cannot control. I couldn't control my diagnosis. All I can control was I was going to go to every doctor's appointment. I didn't care. You know, my work schedule, thankfully I had a good employer that worked with me to, so I could go to all my doctor's appointments. I was going to do everything I could to get better. That's all I could control. I can't control the diagnosis. You know, I didn't deny it. You know, I didn't... What are the five stages of grief? Like, I don't know. Denial. Denial. Anger. Bargaining. Acceptance. Or there's someone other in there. Depression. Depression for me was last. (laughs) But anyway, so like, yeah, this guy... I think anybody who has been diagnosed with cancer, especially, I think would glean a lot from this book. Uh Anybody even been close to somebody with cancer, I think would would get a lot from this book too, especially during the wife's part at the end. Um, But yeah, no, this there were several things that just rung so true to me in this book that, um, yeah, I mean that's why I liked it so much. Yeah. No, I definitely recommend this to people, mm-hmm. anybody. Like you said, it's like the whole why not me philosophy. It's why should we be the exception to these terrible things that happen? It could happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people are going through some kind of struggle, you know, right. that we, who knows exactly. Right. Um, but just that experience and what you went through, what he went through, how did like your personality change or like your outlook on the world from that? Oh, well, for me, I, I... I was already thinking more about death at that time because my grandparents had passed away, both of them within a year, and well, the two that were left um, of the four that I had. Um, And so I was thinking a lot about their death, and then I get this diagnosis and I'm thinking about my own death. And so it's just, it just made me more, uh, I I sought out, well, first of all, I got through the, 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 chemo treatments and then I was depressed and so I had to get myself better and I had to focus on that so I had I went to counseling I tried to just get out of that apartment and do things to just I don't know distract myself or to just to no so I wasn't moping around my apartment all the time and then so I had to get myself better first but then as I was gradually getting better I was more interested in philosophy and existentialism and stoicism and stuff like that. Um, so it just made me, it increased my appetite for analyzing humanity and, and death and how do we derive meaning out of our lives. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know like if that is something that I would have naturally been drawn to as I got older or, you know, or would this, it was this diagnosis or I, would I have not even cared about that? 
I think I would have a little bit. I don't think I would have swung so sharply to the philosophy um, section in Barnes and Noble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but like so I try to enjoy the little things in life. I don't get worked up over things I can't control, like I said earlier. So but then again, you know, I've always been a laid back guy. So I kinda of feel like I felt like I was a, a, a young, healthy twenty seven year old when I was diagnosed, so I could easily tackle it. And and that's what when I went to the waiting room and saw all the old people, because I was the youngest person there by far. Everyone else was, you know, because I mean, unfortunately, it's just you know, as people get older, they get you know, are more susceptible to. I don't know. It just seemed like most of the cancer patients there were fifty or, or older. So I was definitely the youngest one that I saw. I did see another young guy there when I was wrapping up my treatments. So that was kind of unfortunate, but um. But no, so I just, I don't know. I felt like I could easily handle it. That for some strange reason, one thing I thought was if me going through Hodgkin lymphoma prevented somebody else going through it, then I can handle it. It was weird. Hmm. But yeah, it's interesting because I don't know how, you know, would I be different today if I hadn't gone through that? Probably, but how different, I can't really say. It's hard to say. Yeah. That's what I was wondering because you are a laid back guy, mm-hmm. but I didn't know if that was just from having more perspective now and like not letting little things bother you as much because you've gone through this. I think, yes, I've always been laid back, but I would, I, before, I think I was very much more <laughs> neurotic. Like I was more concerned about what other people thought that I was, I've always been an introvert and, but before I would obsess over what people thought or oh crap I said something stupid or you know things like that where now I kind of don't stress about that stuff as much uh, because if someone thinks I'm stupid so be it I think Abraham Lincoln had a quote it's better to remain quiet and thought be thought of as a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt yeah (laughs) I like that quote yeah I mean, it's kind of applicable, but... It's good justification yeah. for being quiet. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Just, just you know, you don't have to prove yourself or justify yourself to anybody if you don't want to. But what you said about not getting worked up about things kind of goes back to the whole stoic approach. Mm-hmm. Just not letting your emotions right. harness your behavior and way of thinking. Right. Um, I have just one quick quote to tie into that. Uh, yeah. Because when he got his... Not when he got his diagnosis, um, but when he found out he had a, a really large tumor kind of towards the end that was really reinforcing the fact that this was terminal. Uh, he says, he's looking at like the scan, and he says, there it was, a new tumor, large, filling my right middle lobe. It looked oddly like a full moon having almost cleared the horizon. Going back to the old images, I could make out the faintest trace of it, a ghostly harbinger now brought fully into the world. I was neither angry nor scared. It simply was. It was a fact about the world, like the distance from the sun to the earth. Yes, that resonated with me too. That was a good good selection there, Tim. Yeah, because he's absolutely right. There's that's completely out of his control. It's it is what it is. That that phrase gets a little overused in my opinion nowadays. Like people say, it is what it is. Kind of like sometimes. I mean, it depends on the context. Because sometimes people say that like throwing their hands up saying, what can you do? It is what it is. Like, there's no point in trying or 
whatever. Yeah. But sometimes it is what it is is appropriate because you can't change some things. Yeah, it sort of has been repeated ad nauseum, but when it's used in a defeatist way, it's sort of annoying, like yeah. you said. Right. But when it's used to just acknowledge, like, that's the reality. I'm going to handle it the best way that I can. I like that yeah. approach. Do you want to go over, you want to just go over more quotes? Sure. Because I think this will, I think, I think this book particularly has a lot of quotes that I think will stimulate other conversations. I mean, one, one thing, I, I just like the way he wrote. Because in Arizona, he, talking about his childhood and his upbringing and going to college, he didn't really have a, well, anyway, I'll just read the quote. I felt less like someone preparing to climb a career ladder than a buzzing electron about to achieve escape velocity, flinging out into a strange and sparkling universe. So that's kind of how he felt leaving Arizona, going to school. He didn't really have a plan at that point, but you don't need one. That's just it. You go to school, you figure it out. Mm-hmm. That's my His life path, too, was interesting because he was in that, it's like small town Arizona, mm-hmm. but his... Like, mom really wanted him to have the best opportunity, opportunity, so he would, like, go miles and miles to take SATs. He ended up at Stanford, uh, studied in Cambridge for, like, a year, mm-hmm. went to, um, where else did he go? Yale, I think. Yale, and then back to Stanford yeah. for med school, so yeah. he really... But, no, wanted. it's interesting, because his parents are Indian, uh-huh. right? No, I think his dad, his mom's Tibetan, or... No, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about somebody else. No, I think they are... Some some so different anyway yeah. from Central S- Southern Asia. Asia yeah. They lived in New York with pretty pre- prestigious primary schools and whatnot. Uh-huh. So that's that's where he was born in New York. Oh. Okay. And then they moved to Arizona in the middle of nowhere. And so his mom was concerned he didn't have this nice high school. What is he gonna do? So she kind of flung herself in the PTA and and getting the school up to up to snuff. And yeah, he would go miles to study for the SAT and all that stuff. I was impressed by her as a character yeah, yeah. and what, how he talked about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just how much she sacrificed or would do. Right. Um, I'll go ahead and read the first quote, how the book opens, because I think mm. that sets the tone pretty well. Okay. So this is from Baron Brook Folk Greville. I don't know, <laughs> but that's who said it. <laughs> that's a, that's quite a, a baron? Name. Yeah. <laughs> that's who said it. Anyway. How do you become a baron? Let's, let's not get down. Let's not get too sidetracked. Right. He says, uh, "You that seek what life is in death, now find it air that once was breath. New names unknown, old names gone. Till time end bodies, but souls none. Reader, then make time will you be, but steps to your eternity." Ah yes. So yeah. and just combining his love of like poetry, literature, mm-hmm. and his experience, right. I think that right. is a good way. Oh, and yeah. that's where the title comes from. So. Huh. Yeah. yeah, when breath becomes air. Huh. Yeah. I just thought it was funny. Um, he was in med school. Uh, Cadaver dissection is a medical rite of passage and a trespass on the sacrosanct engendering a legion of feelings from revulsion, exhilaration, nausea, frustration, and awe to, as time passes, the mere tedium of academic exercise. Everything teeters between pathos and bathos. Here you are, violating society's most fundamental taboos, and yet formaldehyde is a powerful appetite stimulant, so you also crave a burrito. <laughs> <laughs> I like that passage. Yeah. You can see his sense of humor kind of coming yes. through. Uh, yeah. And that's something his wife mentioned in the epilogue, is that he's just a really funny person yeah. in life. Yeah, and 
and I think she mentioned it in a way that was kind of lamenting that it didn't show up enough in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, like it showed up in places like that, which I appreciated, but she made it sound like he was, you know, like he was very much a jovial person. And, uh, yeah. It's, it's a tricky tone to set it with is. this book. Like mm-hmm. how much humor do I throw in? How much philosophy? How much this right. and that? I think right. he did a good job balancing oh, it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And another thing I appreciated in the epilogue was that she mentioned how he talked about their marital problems, like before the diagnosis, I think, just because of the stress of med school and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, just that ability to be vulnerable and despite what, like, you know, his family or whatever might have been thinking mm-hmm. was impressive to me. Yeah. So. All right, I like this quote. Um, he's talking about brain surgery and as a neurosurgeon, he says, uh, to the patient and family, the brain surgery is usually the most dramatic event they have ever faced and as such has the impact of any major life event. At those critical junctures, the question is not simply whether to live or die, but what kind of life is worth living? Mm. And he goes on to talk about like, do you want to sustain your loved one with right. tubes and things right. in this vegetative state? Yes. Um, that's where it, philosophy kind of comes into right i think i think i ha- i picked up on the tail end of that because i have a quote here the possible long painful and only partial recovery or sometimes more likely no return at all of the person they remember in these moments i acted not as i most often did as death's enemy but as its ambassador because yeah when they're hooked up to machines and and not no sign of ever getting function back you know is that how that person would really want to live yeah it's so hard to say it's like Mm -hmm. so many personal beliefs come into it Mm -hmm. and you have to think about what the family wants and what's best for the individual and right i don't even know where to start like yeah (laughs) yeah so okay well i just had a few one-liner quotes the angst of facing mortality has no remedy in probability. I like that one. Because no matter what you're going through, like, when my Hodgkin's lymphoma had like a 90% survival rate, right? So I, I knew that, you know, I was, chances are I was going to be okay. But that did not help my angst of facing mortality, you know? So, I felt like that one was spot on. Yeah. Regardless of what the statistics are, right? it's still what right. you're going through. Another one-liner quote that I like is, If the weight of mortality does not grow lighter, does it at least get more familiar? And my answer to that is yes. Because death is death. Right? The, you know, the weight of that is the same whether you're nine or 90. But for me at least, having gone through Hodgkin's lymphoma, I do feel like it becomes, does it get, does it at least get more familiar? I would say, yeah. But not like not in a bad way, not like I'm, gonna, I'm not afraid of death, I'm still afraid to die. But I'm fascinated to think about it and talk about it. And I think that's one thing that we as a society have not I don't know, you know. Yeah, I know. I know what you're. Well, I think I know what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but, uh, 
that's what so his wife in the epilogue also said like we have this death avoiding culture mm -hmm. which i think is really a good way to put it because america in particular like the united states i think is so much focused on like uh what's new fresh future thinking mm -hmm. like present um i don't know what i'm trying to say but basically we we tend to suppress death and not think about it as much as i think a lot of other cultures do right. and we don't respect the elderly probably as much as many other cultures like I was watching this one uh, show where this guy goes around the world like various tribes and things like that like a documentary thing and uh, and they kept like some corpses like way after they died because they have this very prolonged like funeral ritual and they sort of um, I don't want to say drag it out but they like you know they really make a uh, it's like paying respects. An appreciation of that person's life. Right. Yeah. Right. And whereas we tend to like sweep things under the rug and try to repress a lot of mm -hmm. dark times, I think right. a lot of other cultures have better um, appreciation of, of death and how that plays into their perspective in life, I think is important. I think grief is something, yeah, that we don't address in, enough in America. I think you're right. And I think you had on a good point that other societies have coping mechanisms to, I don't know if it's lessening the grief or maybe it's helping to confront the grief so it doesn't fester underneath the surface. Like, but I think you're absolutely right. Sweeping under the rug, people just want to just get it over with. Don't think about it. Don't even talk about it. Don't bring it up. They don't want to even address it. And that can't be healthy. That's not healthy. Yeah. And, I mean, taking a sidetrack, Manchester by the Sea is a film that came out recently in the last couple of years, and I feel like that did a wonderful... That film is about grief. And I know you haven't seen it, right? But that, it is 100% about grief. And it was just so well done that everyone handles it differently, and that's okay, but... To be healthy about it, you need to address it. And I feel like this is what... Another thing that you can take away from this book is that I feel like the the Kalanithi family definitely addressed, you know, the impending uh, events that were going to happen to their family. And they decided to have a daughter. Well, a child. It happened to be a daughter. Um, I think that was that was great. And, it, it, and he wrote... Paul wrote that it provided him with so much joy... As at the end of his life, and so I mean, there's so many. I think there's so many life lessons to take away from this book too. It seems like he handled everything with a lot of integrity, like his wife said, and the family in general. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, when if you recommend this book to other people, a lot of them are like, "Oh wait, he gets cancer and dies." Like, I don't want to read that. That just sounds depressing. Right. right. But uh, that's like you said, like not really a healthy reaction. No. Because you need to like these things happen and. Right. The more you internalize that and are aware of it, I think even though it's like tough to hear about the suffering, it kind of broadens your uh, perspective of what people go through. You have more empathy in the future. You have more compassion. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. I th I think you you found something very very good there. That I think people who go through grief address their grief and confront it do have more empathy. And compassion for others, and, and when when you know, I think I think I think well, that's just all right. Maybe not one hundred percent certainty, but 
I feel like that could be a benefit is if you address grief, then that increases your empathy and compassion. And I think that will just make you more in touch with your own feelings and emotions. And doesn't everyone benefit when people are more in touch with their feelings and emotions? That's my view. Yeah, it's just healthier if you right. uh, acknowledge these things going on and then let them affect you. Um, and just mortality in general, like knowing that we all have this finite time limit and sort of accepting it mm-hmm. is, it, it changes how you live your life. You're less likely to, I think, to get caught up in some kind of dead end uh, career or um, relationship. Something, if you don't feel is right, you're probably more inspired to change once you sort of reflect more on your mortality and stuff. Right, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, or it's like the good place when you just earn points. If you if you know yeah. you're if you know you're you're out there earning points for good deeds, you're more likely to. Did do you good see deeds. the last episode? I got caught up. Yeah. Okay. Well, I saw the one where they they beat all the demons in the bar. Right. Was that? But the the main thing was the guy who was doing the point thing, where he's like, "Here's the best guy in the world because he lives so selflessly." Mm-hmm. But it just showed how ridiculous it is to a hundred percent sacrifice your life for like everything else. Yeah. So that yeah. was funny. Um, there's a healthy balance, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. It's a good show. Oh, yeah. It is. Philosophy and stuff. All right. Um, yeah, they were talking about determinism and free will in Good Place. I loved it. I absolutely loved For it. NBC sitcom. Yeah. It's pretty heavy. Yeah. Pretty all right. Um, all right. So when he's going through the treatments, this is his quote here. A pattern developed over the weeks. The malaise would slowly ease... Normalcy returning just in time for the next treatment. And that was 100% my experience. Is I got treated every two weeks, every other Thursday. So I'd get treated Thursday, feel somewhat okay, like Friday. But then Saturday, Sunday, Monday was just out. And then slowly come back the next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, okay. Go back to work a little, a few days. And then that next weekend, I'd be like, okay, all right. And then I work a few more days and then go back and get treated again. I mean, it was just up and down, up and down, up and down. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and so I've addressed, I've addressed a few of the things that resonated with me, but I feel like that's why anybody can read this that has gone through something. They would Something else would resonate with them. And I think that's the beauty of literature and, and books and art in general is that it doesn't resonate with anybody the same way, and that's perfectly fine. That's the whole point of art is just to get a reaction, just to, or if it's if there's even if there's no reaction, that in itself is a reaction. If something doesn't resonate with you, then it doesn't. You know. Yeah, everybody has some form of suffering, right? If it's mm-hmm. not cancer, you have your own traumatic right. event, and then you have like friends and family who have gone through maybe cancer. Right. Um, and yeah, I think it gives you more understanding maybe mm-hmm. of what they do reading something like this. Like, even though it's a different diagnosis than you, different part of the body, it still parallels in how, in some of the things you went through. Yeah. Um, I like this passage because uh, some people might think when you have a terminal illness, you just like, you know, go live it up, do your bucket list, that sort of thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but this kind of gives the other mm-hmm. angle. 
Okay. Time for me is now double-edged. Every day brings me further from the low of my last relapse, but closer to the next recurrence, and eventually, death. Perhaps later than I think, but certainly sooner than I desire. There are, I imagine, two responses to that realization. The most obvious might be an impulse to frantic activity, to live life to its fullest, to travel, to dine, to achieve a host of neglected ambitions. Part of the cruelty of cancer, though, is not only that it limits your time, it also limits your energy, vastly reducing the amount you can squeeze into a day. It is a tired hare who now races, and even if I had the energy, I prefer a more tortoise-like approach. I plod, I ponder, some days I simply persist. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, because you can't, yeah, 100%, it zaps your energy. I mean, you're, you're not just going through the treatments or whatever that you have to do, but just going through the stress of being sick, being, having a life-threatening illness, and, and that is not, you're just not going to want to go skydiving or, you know, hike the Appalachian Trail when you have that on your mind. You know, it's just, it's 100% right. It's hard for me to imagine, like, the stress, the emotional burden, the personal burden, sometimes, like, financial, people without insurance, things like that, like, mm -hmm. so many different factors that can, right. yeah, how do you imagine having, making time to do your bucket list when you have all these other things? going on one thing that I was interested in my experience well was it came to diet when I was going through chemo I especially the day of I didn't know what I would feel like eating but I talked to one person or I was, I was in a group and I was saying you know with what I'm going through I just been eating whatever the hell I want because who cares? You know, I'm going through chemo. I'm going to eat a whole package of Oreo cookies if I want to. And the other person was like, really? You wouldn't want to, like, eat 100% healthy food to, like, help your body? And I'm like, I never even thought of that, you know? Whereas if different people, you know, have different priorities when it comes to that kind of level of stress... So on one hand, I took the approach of eating a bunch of junk food and whatever I wanted, whereas other people would want to take the more holistic route of treating their body as well as they can in the meantime while they're going through all these treatments. And I totally see both routes, right? Please tell me my indulgence of, of junk food was okay. <laughs> well, it's, it's ongoing. It's the thing. I don't think that stopped. <laughs> We eat, out, we eat out a lot. Touche. That's what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think I know what you're saying. Like, everyone has different reactions. And I can, from your perspective, I probably do the same thing. Like, you just want to enjoy life. Like, I'm going through all this tough stuff. Like, mm -hmm. why not just have the extra dessert? And um, I think they even said that somewhere in the book or, like, some interview I listened to. is just, like, why pass up on dessert? Like, enjoy your life and mm -hmm. these things that go along with it. That's right. That's the oil family motto. In moderation. <laughs> Why pass Calm up down, on dessert? Oh, dang. <laughs> All right. So I am going to read my favorite quote of the book. Okay. I forget what part of this book this was, of the book it was, but I'll just read it. Okay. One chapter of my life seemed to have ended. Perhaps the whole book was closing. Instead of being the pastoral figure aiding a life transition, I found myself the sheep lost and confused. Severe illness wasn't life-altering, it was life-shattering. It felt less like an epiphany 
a piercing burst of light illuminating what really matters, and more like someone had just firebombed the path forward. Now I would have to work around it. That favorite quote of the book, that's exactly what it's like. It's not life altering, it's life shattering. You just have to pick up the pieces. It's a great passage. Yeah. I think the last sentence is particularly impactful because now you have to walk around it. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what he says. Like, it's it's empowering, you know. Like, this is what I'm going through and I have to find a way to deal with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, someone firebombed the path and he has to work around it. Yeah. yeah. And just, you just have to find your way. Like, in my, I think of Maya Angelou quote, we find our path by walking it. Just drop that on you. Heavy stuff. That is good. I like that. Yeah. He kept quoting like Samuel Beckett, I think. He had yeah. this mantra that he would say, I can't go on, I will go on. Yeah. Just things like that over and over. He, he quoted like T.S. Eliot too yeah. from The Wasteland or something. Oh, here, here's one thing I will bring up a good little topic is in, in the book he says, at her, this woman had passed away, 82 years old woman passed away. At her autopsy, the pathologist would, have, would be shocked to learn her age. She has the organs of a 50-year-old. So that's something that I've always been interested about is what if there is something special about you and me that is totally mundane and not that exciting? But wouldn't you still want to know? Like this 82-year-old woman died and her autopsy, the pathologist says she has great organs, organs of a 50-year-old. And that's great for this 82-year-old woman. I mean, unfortunately, she died. Like, we're, we're all going to die. But, like, <laughs> what if there was something purely unique about you, Tim? Not just in your body, but also in how you view the world or what you do. You're the best Nintendo Switch player in the world. And, you, and there's no way you know that. Uh-huh. Would I want to know? Well, of course. You would want to know, right? But, like, there's there's got to be something about everybody. That's... I guess that is my little nugget that I hold on to when I think about every singular person has something special about them. You know, we are all our separate beings on this planet, just living, trying to live each our, our own lives. But deep down, there's got to be something special about everyone. No, I think that's a great, like, sort of uh, lesson to impart. That might be a little idealistic. <laughs> it is. It is totally idealistic. Brian it doesn't. Is. It doesn't fit with my existentialism and my stoicism per se. <laughs> but like, but there's maybe you know it does because everyone can can existentialism is you can choose what is meaningful in your life, and so everybody can have something special that they choose. That that is their meaning. That makes them special. I think that's no, I totally agree. And and to tie it back into the book, like he the author I think was very special because mm-hmm. who else is like a trained neurosurgeon and as good of a writer as he was right. with this literature background, he was a very unique individual in that sense. And even though he didn't live into his forties and make those contributions that he could have in the medical field, he still passed on this book, this legacy, and I think that's really impressive. Absolutely. He contributed in this way. Unfortunately that, you know, his life is shorter and his wife and daughter now I I hope they can I don't know. It's it's gotta be rough 
but I hope they can still find happiness and appreciation for the time they had with him. But it sounds like I mean his family's still very supportive. Mm-hmm. Of, I'm sure of her, and she sounded like very strong. And oh yeah, and they made the decision to have a child, knowing yeah. the circumstances. Yeah. So I think, I, yeah, I think she'll be all right. Yeah, yeah. I can uh, end my quotes with this one from her, okay. actually, from mm-hmm. the epilogue. Um, so this is his wife saying, uh, "This is Lucy Kalanithi." Kalanithi. Kalanithi. Yeah. God. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, she says. Paul's decision not to avert his eyes from death epitomizes a fortitude we don't celebrate enough in our death-avoiding culture. His strength was defined by ambition and effort, but also by softness, the opposite of bitterness. He spent much of his life wrestling with the question of how to live a meaningful life, and his book explores that essential territory. Always the seer is a sayer, Emerson wrote. Somehow his dream is told, somehow he publishes it with solemn joy. Writing this book was a chance for this courageous seer to be a sayer, to teach us to face death with integrity. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. So, are you ready to face your own death, Tim? No, I'm not either. Don't <laughs> worry. But all right. So, what would what rating would you give the book? Four out of five. Okay. You're gonna say five. Right? I'm gonna say five. You're biased. I so be it. <laughs> I mean, yes. I don't care. I love this book. I burned through it read it i mean i know it's a little shorter but i ate it up it was it yes like a pack of oreos <laughs> <laughs> yes like a pack of oreos yep. that, all right i think that's a good way to it's a great book yeah i highly recommend yes it to yes yeah. um so what's our next book tim the road to unfreedom by timothy snyder all right another new one because we established that old books are bad and, and new ones are good now. That's fine. You, you did a complete 180, huh? Everything old is crap. The Odyssey, crap. You know? I live in extremes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, go to our website, twoguysonebook.com. Feel free to comment on anything you like, literally anything, because um, nobody does. <laughs> but that's okay. All, all right. means, yeah. so I just delete them all. <laughs> all right. Anyway. All right. Yes. Keep reading. Keep reading.